Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, hey, Tulare Community Church. For those of you who may be new, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Please open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapter 4 today as we wrap up this series on this book. So listen now to the word of the Lord, Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Do you guys remember Paul Harvey? He was a radio personality who hosted a show called The Rest of the Story. And he would present these little-known stories or forgotten facts of history, but he would withhold a key detail, usually the name of the person because it was a well-known person. So he'd tell this little story, and then at the end he would say something like, And that boy grew up to be George Washington. 
And you'd be like, what? And then he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. That was the thing. And that makes me think of this book of Ruth. It's not a very grandiose story, is it? There are no miracles. There's no awesome display of God's power. There's no words spoken from God at all. There's no angels of deliverance. There's no visions or dreams. There's no prophetic messages. And the climax, the wow moment, the showstopper, is a genealogy. It's really important. They mention it twice. And Ruth went on to have a great-grandson, and that great-grandson's name was King David. And now you know the rest of the story. It's an interesting story. Uh, We see hardships and tragedy. We see God's law at work. We see kindness and faithfulness and perseverance. But it takes on new meaning and significance when we see it from the broader view of history. That it leads to David has significance for the Jews, but even more so for us as Christians because it leads us to Christ who comes through this genealogy. The story of Ruth, then, is not just a story of redemption for Ruth or Naomi, but for all of humanity, for me and for you and for all of us who claim Christ as our Redeemer. And so in light of that, its smallness is a comfort and it's a beauty. It's not all miracles or angelic pronouncements or unbelievable displays of God's power. It's just life with its good and its bad and its joys and its sorrows and ordinariness. But through that, we see God's invisible hand at work, how he uses daily lives, his people's acts of kindness and faithfulness, small as it may be, insignificant as it may seem, to bring about his plan of salvation. That's the beauty and the comfort of this. We see God's providential, unfailing work invisibly moving in the ordinary messiness of life. And this story is filled with mess, with brokenness and less than ideal situations. Let's just start with Ruth. Ruth is from Moab. She's a Moabite. The book mentions that repeatedly. It's kind of messy. Should Malone ever have married Ruth? There are laws against marrying foreign women. It says in Joshua, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. That's the reason for the law, and that's a restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy." Do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. 
Now, you could say that that prohibition against intermarriage applies only to those seven nations explicitly mentioned. Moab isn't one of them. Moab is a descendant of Lot, who's related to Abraham, so they're practically family. And there is special treatment and regard for Moab because of that, right? It says in Deuteronomy, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And there's at least one condition in which it is explicitly permissible for Israelites to marry foreign women. Here it is. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. But Ruth is not a captive. Her family is not dead. Naomi implores her to go back to her family. It's not conquest. It's just intermarrying. And what's more, it says in Deuteronomy... No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. And then in verse 6 it says, Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Well, marriage is kind of the ultimate treaty. That's what was done in those days. The reason Solomon had so many wives was not simply because of carnal lust. No, that was the ratification of treaties. And it said, no Moabite or any descendant may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Hmm. Remind me again, how many generations separate Ruth from David? Ah, But you see, it's through the father that counts. If your father is an Israelite, you're an Israelite. That seems like a sufficient answer, but maybe not quite. Let's look at Ezra. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hettites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. That's the problem. And here's their solution in chapter 10. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. And their children. Aren't these Israelite men? Doesn't that mean that their offspring are Israelites? And that doesn't seem to be the interpretation for the prophet Ezra. And notice that in Ezra, it points us back to the passage in Deuteronomy that we looked at. And Moab is included as being a part of the ban on marrying foreign women. So it doesn't only apply to the seven nations explicitly mentioned. And we see the same thing in Nehemiah. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. 
Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Should Malone ever have married Ruth? Should Boaz have married Ruth? On the one hand, he's a kinsman redeemer. On the other hand, she's a Moabite. Does David even deserve to be in the assembly of God? Well, I know what I think about all this, but that's not really my point. My point is, this is a mess. This is a mess. But God's sovereign plan does not fail. That's the point. And that is a comfort to us because we deal with a lot of things that are not theologically tidy. We try to get our theology right, you know, think through the issues, study the scriptures. But almost from inception, the church has had theological disagreement. And over the centuries, there's been all kinds of schisms and fracturing and separations and divisions, some of it over pretty essential things, others not so much. And even now, as most of you are probably aware, our denomination is going through a sort of separation. Theological disagreement and disagreement about how we deal with that disagreement. And we find ourselves on opposite sides of even churches that we've planted. And it's a mess. But we don't lose heart and we're not discouraged because of what we see here in Ruth. God does not fail. He can use even our mess for his purposes. And his sovereign plan of salvation is not conditioned on our theological tidiness or our theological purity. We do our best, but I can pretty much guarantee that when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out that I got some things theologically wrong. You know, well, turns out it was transubstantiation. Who knew? Did not see that coming. Seems unlikely. But the comfort that we have is that God will not be thwarted by our theological shortcomings. In fact, the sovereign will of God will not be thwarted even in our disobedience. You know, Boaz is not the nearest relative as it shows in our passage. The obligation is really not on him. And here's what the scriptures say about a person who will not fulfill their obligation as the kinsman redeemer. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's family shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. I really see two failings. Other commentators might disagree, but I, I see two failings here. One, the closest relative does not do what he ought to do. He doesn't fulfill his obligation. He doesn't act like Boaz does. 
And the second failing is this refusal doesn't seem to be met with any disgrace. It just feels like, you know, a normal standard transaction. It's just the way business is done in Israel. I think there's failure here. I think they failed to live up to the law. Personal failure, societal failure to live according to the word. And yet God does not fail. Christ comes to us through this broken and failed line. He comes to us because of our sin, precisely because we could not live up to his law. And even our sin, even our disobedience will not thwart the sovereign will of God. And what we see in scripture is that God can use even our sin for his good. You know, Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, we strive to live righteous lives. We don't keep sinning so that grace may abound. But even in our sin, even in our disobedience, we can have confidence that the salvific sovereign plan of God is not conditioned on our own righteousness. He redeems us even when we don't live up to the law. And lastly, we see in Ruth God's redemptive plan even in the midst of grief and loss and tragedy. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The book of Ruth starts in tragedy. It starts in bitterness. It ends in redemption. And we need to see that. God promises to redeem our fallen and broken world. The scriptures declare to us in 2 Corinthians, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It can be hard to fix our eyes on what we can't see in light of what we do see. How can we fix our eyes on what is eternal when we see children gunned down in school? We see yet another mass shooting, another act of unspeakable evil. We see heartbreak and anguish that we don't even want to imagine. And the world will say, act, do something, legislate, and gun control, school security, and mental health action. And that might mitigate, it might. But it won't redeem. We don't have that power. But we do have Jesus. And the hope that we have in him is that even the depths of this evil is not beyond the redemptive hand of God. Even if we can't see it. You know, the book of Ruth starts in tragedy. Naomi's husband dies. Her sons die. She's destitute. And I'm sure she loves Ruth and is grateful for her. I'm sure that she's overjoyed in her grandson and joyful that her life turned out better than she probably expected after her loss. But it's the women who are saying, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. 
Naomi doesn't say that. And honestly, I, I think if it were totally up to Naomi, she would have her sons and her in-laws and grandchildren. That doesn't take away all the pain. And not all wounds will fully mend this side of heaven. Naomi sees a glimpse. She doesn't see the whole. She sees a glimpse of God's redemption. She doesn't see the whole. She sees her suffering lead to her grandson, but she doesn't see her suffering lead to Christ. She doesn't see the full measure of how God uses her suffering for her good. But not just her good, but my good too. And you're good. And all of us who claim Jesus as our Lord, her tragedy is redeemed by God for her good and our good and his glory. Because the story of Ruth ultimately leads us to Christ. Grief is a desert that can only be crossed on foot. But in Christ, it leads to the highway of holiness. You know, hear these words from Isaiah. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now we see through a glass darkly. But one day we will see Christ. And then we will know the rest of the story. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.